Now then, with a view to the help of God, let's uh, turn to that second passage that we read in God's Word. That's the book of Psalms and Psalm 11. Where the question is asked in verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now David uh, writes this psalm in response to a, a situation that I think we can all identify with very easily. It's a situation where, as the text says, the foundation is destroyed or the pillars are being moved. The word destroyed means just to be overthrown or be cast down. These foundations here in the psalm are a reference to the institutions that undergird the nation as well as the moral code which undergirds these institutions. We all know that not only our nation but every nation like the nation of Israel is built on a foundation of some kind, institutions, but underneath them is a moral code by which these institutions operate. Now the institutions are important to remember, they're important to remember in law, they're important to safeguard in prayer and in all our activities. And they are of course, first of all, the family uh, with marriage at its heart because that's how God designs the family to function, being built upon marriage between one man and one woman. The other foundational institution is, of course, the Church of God herself, and the other is the government that God has also appointed. And both ministers of the Church and ministers of the state are called God's ministers. In Romans 13, we're reminded that those who rule over us in the state are called ministers of God. So these institutions are of course the institutions which underlie our nation. And the moral code underneath them is of course, or supposed to be, the Ten Commandments, which I'm sure you know well. The first four reminding us how we relate to God and worship Him, and then logically flowing from that, the second six which remind us how we relate to each other, which incidentally begins in the family with the honouring of father and mother, breaking out from there to respecting life from the womb to the tomb, respecting marriage in its purity, and respecting property, and respecting truth, and respecting other people's possessions, guarding against covetousness or lust in our own hearts. Now from time to time in the experience of Israel and herself the foundations were being shaken. For example not too long before the captivity Isaiah was uh, rebuking the people and describing the state of the nation where he says that people's fingers were full of iniquity lips speaking lies no one calls for justice, no one pleads for truth. 
The people trust in vain words. They speak lies. Their feet are quick to run to evil and to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of sin, wasting and destruction are in their paths. There is no justice in their ways. In transgression and lying and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, justice is turned back, righteousness stands far away, truth has fallen in the street, justice cannot enter, and the one who departs from evil makes himself a prey. In other words, if you repent and turn to God, you just become a target for people. But the Lord saw it, and it displeased him. He saw that there was no justice, and that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. So it's not unusual to have times like that. But the Lord did tell them that if they persisted in that kind of behaviour, that the ultimate sanction would fall upon them. That's at least in this life. We know, friends, that the ultimate sanction that falls upon us is one that comes in the world to come. If we, if we die rebellious and unrepentant, the ultimate sanction is, of course, hell itself for each one of us. But the ultimate sanction in terms of our social order and our nations, God said, would be captivity for you. I will take you away from the land uh, which I gave you. I told you if you honoured your father and your mother, your days would be long in the land which I gave you. But if you cease to observe my commandments, if you undermine the family, and if you undermine the house of God and pollute it, instead of keeping it pure, he says, I will take you away to another nation in captivity, and in so doing, God says, I will cleanse the land. Now that is a reminder to them, you see, of, of how evil their evil actually was in God's sight. Sometimes when you do evil and God doesn't seem to rebuke it, you think, well, maybe it's not that bad after all. And uh, that's just the way it goes. That's the way our sinful hearts reason. As God said in the psalm, uh, you did these things, and because I did not rebuke you, uh, you thought I was altogether like yourselves. <coughs> but I will rebuke you, and I will raise up your sins before your face. And of course that time came to Israel. I mean... In the midst of her security, Babylon came and took the people away, and it was a cleansing of the land. You know, when Israel were first brought into the land, he, it was as a result of cleansing the land from the Canaanites. For 400 years, God's patience uh, was with the Canaanites. Now, think about that, by the way. God's patience is a lot longer than ours. We think if something doesn't happen in 10 years, that God's not doing anything. God gave 400 years for the Canaanites to come to a place of repentance. But God speaking, uh, but the Canaanites speaking reverentially exhausted the patience of God because it's always finite with respect to sinners. And we're told that God cleansed the land and he placed his own people there. And they rebuilt that land on proper foundations until the land couldn't bear that iniquity anymore. Now, that's a strange way of speaking to us, but it's a very graphic and powerful way of speaking, even if it is poetic, that the land is tired of us. The land is tired. It, it groans. Paul speaks of the creation itself groaning because of the iniquity of the people. There are many ways in which that can be true. As people rape and pillage the land. 
but the lamb can be groaning just because of the evil that's in it and it cries out to God for redress just like the blood of Abel cried out to God for vengeance so God cleansed the land and took his people away and of course when that happened the city of Jerusalem was in ruins and the temple was in ruins the foundations were destroyed the land was finished the land needed a complete renewal from the foundation upwards and of course you'll remember that in God's grace that did happen 70 years later God's people had repented recognised their sin individual and corporate you'll remember how Daniel led them in that great corporate prayer in Daniel chapter 9 where he included himself now in a way we would think he needn't do that he was a man apart from his youth and in his adulthood but he included himself in the sin and there's this corporate prayer of repentance as the 70 years comes to its conclusion and so God turns the heart of King Cyrus the Persian ruler and the people of God are released they come back to the land and what do they do? they start to rebuild the foundations that have been destroyed they begin to rebuild the temple which represents the church they begin to rebuild the city wall which represents the society itself in which the church lives and which the church purifies and little by little brick by brick by the grace of God and by his power it wasn't by might or by power but by the spirit of God the foundations were raised and the nation was raised again so that's the foundation and that's how it can be destroyed and how it needs to be rebuilt now in the New Testament we're told that these things will happen too from time to time because Paul says that in the last days perilous times shall come now you're probably familiar with this passage but please remember that last days there is the whole period of the gospel dispensation over the last 2000 years and he says that in that period throughout the whole of the last days there will be perilous seasons in other words when the foundations are themselves broken up and when it will be evident on all sides and he describes what these seasons are like now I'm sure you've read this passage and you've thought well that's very like ourselves there's a way in which these things are always present in life but when we're in a perilous season and God is removing the foundations and his judgment is coming down because because the removal of foundations is God's judgment I mean let's not be deceived about that it's not simply what the wicked are doing it is what God is allowing to be done especially in a covenanted nation like your own where we swore from the highest officials in the land to the lowest ordinary people we swore to uphold the law of God and to honor and to keep the reformed faith in the church in government and in all our institutions in our families in our schools and so on where we swore it you can be sure that the destruction of the foundation is not just the work of the enemy it is the appointment of God so there are times when these seasons appear and we're to recognize God's hand what will these seasons be like what will characterize them 
Well, men would be, in a special way, lovers of themselves. Now, the natural man always is, you could say. Yes, but at a time like this, distinctively so. And really, self-love is reaching epidemic proportions. This is the most narcissistic time in our nation that you can think of. It's really full of self-love. It's the age of the selfie, after all. People will be lovers of money, they always are, but at times like this, extremely so. We're told that they will be boastful, proud, and blasphemers. They will be disobedient to parents. That will be a particular marker. You look round families and you say, well, there's, there's no real obedience to parents. There is disrespect. Unthankful, unloving, unforgiving. It's a very unforgiving society. I mean, if you say a word out of place, your whole career may just be ruined. Slanderers. A lot of that, especially in social media. Without self-control, brutal, despising what is good, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And in nations that once knew something better, these things are far more significant. Now, by nations that once knew something better, I'm referring to the ten nations of uh, Daniel's prophecy. These are the ten toes of the statue. When the old Roman Empire disintegrated, we're told that it disintegrated into ten kingdoms which struggled to adhere together. And that speaks of the way in which Europe itself just fragmented but tried to be cohesive. It's in essence a continuation of the same ungodly statue. But in these ten kingdoms there's a special dealing from God. There always has been through history. That's not taking a parochial or narrow view of things. It's just recognizing what the Bible itself says. That there is a special focus on the Bible on the nations which descend from that particular statue, from the kingdom of Rome in particular. <coughs> and so God marks what they have done with the heritage that they have received. What we have done with the gospel, which we have had and enjoyed for 2,000 years. When we despise it in some kind of way, these will be the markers. And whatever that says, all that says about the world, it says a lot about the church too. It means that for some reason, we have not been faithful to God. In covenanted nations, nations rise and fall as God's people rise and fall. That's the way it works. You need to look at places that don't know the gospel. Different rules may apply in different ways. But in nations which know the Lord, the nations rise and fall as God's people rise and fall. And if we look around us at a nation in ruin and disarray, the first message is to us. Definitely the first message is to us. And there's no doubt that we live in a situation like that. I don't need to describe to you how the foundations are destroyed. I, I really don't think I do. If you look around you, you'll know that that's happening. 
Everything is disintegrating. The family is disintegrating. Marriage is disintegrating. Not accidentally, but through deliberate attacks upon it, while the church largely sits by, afraid even to raise a voice. Marriage disintegrates, family disintegrates. Life itself is disrespected. Our new First Minister wants abortion to be available up to the point of birth. You know yourself what a child is like the second it comes out of the mother's womb. So just go back five minutes and it's okay to kill it. Really? First Minister can be elected when he believes that. Of course, at the other end of life, it's much the same. We know what a frail and weak old person is like. Never would we recommend to kill that person. But I wouldn't be surprised if that was shortly the case. But over the last few days, we, we saw a strange thing in Butte House, did we not? We saw a First Minister with several members, I think, of his family, facing east and praying. And I thought to myself, well, um, the passage actually that immediately came to my mind when I saw that picture, it was just a picture I saw, uh, was of Ezekiel when um, he was led by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God came upon him and he saw inside the temple. And he, he saw 25 men who were leaders of the people uh, facing away from the presence of God and facing towards the east towards the sun. In reality, they were worshippers of nature and not worshippers of God. And instead of facing the presence of the Lord, they faced the east, which is always associated in the, in the word of God, by the way, from, from, um, from Genesis 3 onwards, eastward is away from God, westward is towards it. It's the first thing that came to my mind when I saw him facing east. That's, that's our nation. That's our first minister. And in all these things, God is speaking. He's absolutely speaking. He's speaking to our nation, but he's also speaking to the church. And he's speaking to you and speaking to me. He is breaking up the foundations. And uh, David is living in a time like that. I don't know if he's speaking about Saul's reign, or is he speaking about the rebellion in the time of Absalom? I'm not sure. Uh, to some extent, it doesn't matter too much that the foundations were being broken. And as well as these foundations being broken, in verse 2 there's a specific move against God's people. The people are saying to David, Look, the wicked are bending their bow, making ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. Now, <clears throat> Maybe it's worded like that because it hasn't really quite broken out yet. In other words, as the foundations are being destroyed, people are getting ready to target the believers. Here the bow is bent, uh, the arrow is pulled until the string is tightly, it's taut, and it's just ready to go. And um, that always accompanies the breaking up of the foundations. The attack, as we saw in Psalm 2 just a few weeks back, is always against the Lord and his anointed. The kings, the princes of the earth, combine. They've got nothing in common except this. They combine against the Lord and against his anointed. 
Now, the great question for David, and the question for you, of course, and for me, is what can the righteous do? Verse 3. I don't know if you've asked this question yourself. Not, not in this precise form, maybe, but you've asked this question essentially. That if the foundations are destroyed, if they're breaking up and the nation is disintegrating and ruined, what can the righteous do? Sometimes this is translated, what have the righteous done? In fact, if you, if, if you have a, a King James version with the Psalms in the back, usually you may notice that in the prose version, it says, what can the righteous do? But if you sing the psalm, it says, what have the righteous done? Now, some people say, oh, well, there's uh, mistakes or whatever. It's not mistakes. It's just, that for, it's just that translation isn't always easy, especially with a, with a, a language that's as scarce and economic in vocabulary as Hebrew. It's not easy to say whether it really means what have the righteous done or what can the righteous do. Certainly you could ask what have the righteous done. I mean, while all this is happening, what have the righteous done? What have we done? All of us. Have we even? I mean, you may say, well, I have no hand on a lever of power. And that's true of most of us. We have no hand on a lever of power. But, well, the... Hands that come together in prayer are hands on a lever of power, are they not? And have we even done that? Have we done it as we ought? But I really think that the question is asking, not what have we done, profound as that is, but what can we do? What can the righteous do? Now, um, David is confronted with two options. The first is to flee, and the second is to stay where he is. He can either flee or stay where he is. Now, the first option is to flee. And you'll see in the psalm that David is actually being urged by other people to leave, to get out of the land. There was a time when he, of course, went, went to the land of the Philistines for, for refuge. Um, David's, David's experience is a very interesting one and informative one to follow in so many different ways I mean, as we'll see there are times when we need to run we'll see that in a minute but even when he was in flight one day he came to this conclusion you remember it is a turning point in his life when he said to himself one day I shall fall into the hands of Saul now God had been, keep, God had been keeping him up to that point Difficult as the circumstances were, he had been keeping him. But one day he just came to the conclusion, this protection that's on me is just not going to last. The net's closing in. I'm going to fall into the hands of Saul and off he goes into the land of the Philistines. And that is followed by trouble in David's life. Followed by trouble. Because faith gave way to fear. And here he's being urged just to run away, flee like a bird to a mountain. Now a mountain is obviously a place of um, security. It's a place of anonymity. It's a place of isolation. And it's certainly a place of security of some kind. Now that's the advice he was given. Now just two or three things about this advice. The first thing is that it was tempting. Now 
We can all face situations like that in life, especially situations of spiritual oppression that can come to us uh, at home, it can come in your place of work or wherever, spiritual oppression, and the temptation is to run away from it. Uh, run away from your job or run away from where you live. Now, by saying run away, you can say, well, I'm being disparaging of the action. Well, let's just say flee then. That's a bit more neutral. You can, you can flee uh, from your job or flee from the difficulty or flee from the persecution and the harassment. And it's the easiest course of action. And in fact, David himself on other occasions expressed the wish that he could do it. I mean, we, we sang that together. He said, um, when, when there was violence in the city and everything was disintegrating, he said, oh, that I had wings like a dove. He said, I would flee far away, that I would find a place where I could be in rest. And by rest, he means rest of every kind there. You know, spiritual rest, physical rest, social rest, just everything that was so far removed from the situation that he had at that time. He just wanted to flee away. We can identify with that. Maybe sometimes it's so difficult that you wish you were just taken away to heaven. Or certainly that you were just removed into a place where life would be spiritually easier and more refreshing. So it's always tempting to flee. And this voice that was coming to David was not without its attraction. The second thing about this voice, you see, is that it was uh, plausible enough. Plausible enough. There's always a, a good case to flee. Uh, sometimes it's our duty to flee. Now you may say, well, how do I know? Well, I'll come to that in a second. But there's no denying that it's sometimes our duty to flee. The Lord said so. In the passage that we read, he said, when they persecute you in one city, flee to another. He didn't say, stay where you are, suffer the persecution, confess me, and if need be, die for me. He says, flee. Now the time may come when you are brought before these authorities. In such a case, this is what you must do. But he clearly says that it's not wrong to flee from the one to the other. And just to go back to David, well, David did that. I, I took an example of bad flight. Bad flight was when he thought, I'd be better off with the Philistines than with the people of God. Now, that didn't mean that he wanted to live like the Philistines, but, for, you know, there was a way in which he found it easier just to mix and mingle with the world rather than to be with the church. Maybe sometimes you can reach that kind of situation yourself, although it didn't, it didn't work out well for David, although God oversaw it all. He always does. But there was a time when David, of course, had to flee from Saul. He had to flee from his javelin. And David looks back on that day and he says, I was hunted like a partridge in the mountains. Because he fled from mountain to mountain uh, to be kept from evil. It wasn't wrong for him to flee then. The same was true at the end of his life when his own son rebelled against him. And that was a horrific rebellion. It involved the destruction of godly foundations in Jerusalem. David actually fled Jerusalem with his followers. You remember that? He went weeping out of the city, crossed the brook Kedron, but he, he regrouped on the other side, and with the grace of God, uh, he was able to fight and be restored 
in Jerusalem and the foundations were restored with them again. Uh, God overruled the council of Ahitophel in order to bring that to pass. Let's always remember that. Uh, Councillors in state and in government are absolutely in the hand of the Lord like that. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. See, Ahitophel was David's trusted counsellor. All these prominent men and women in the state have counsellors. Well, David's finest counsellor was Ahitophel, and he just decided to switch sides. He thought he was backing the wrong horse with David, and he went over to Absalom's side. And he gave Absalom good advice for Absalom to win the war. He said, just chase your father right away before he gets a chance to regroup. And, and then one of um, David's plants in there came and said, no, no, leave him be. He's like a wounded bear just now. Just don't go near him. That was bad advice, deliberately given. But God was in control of all that, you see. And there are people around, people in state, that God can just turn their hearts just like that. People can say the right thing, can be used the wrong way, and God's purpose will come to pass. But David knew that there were times when you had to flee. I suppose it's knowing what your motive is, is it not? It's knowing what your motive is. Why is it that you want away? Is it better to run away from this or to stay or to face it? Someone recently asked me a good question. Same reason, it's a couple of years, I suppose, now, but they asked me what I thought was a good question. You know, is it good to stay in this nation or to leave this nation and go somewhere else? And the answer I gave at the time was, well, for myself, I would stay, but if I was raising a family, I'd consider another one. And the reason I said that is because people don't realize how bad this one actually is. In terms of spiritual climate, you're even better south of the border than you are in this nation. That's why I said raising a family. I would consider elsewhere. It's not always an easy decision. The Pilgrim Fathers, you'll remember, left England where they were persecuted. They established their colonies in America and, of course, that became the foundation of America as we know it today. And so much of the godliness that still exists in that country, which is a strange country for polar opposites, but so much of the godliness that exists there stems from these fathers and mothers who left England because of persecution for their faith. Who's going to say it was wrong of them to do that? The Huguenots of France, they were being massacred, they were being butchered, of course. Some of you may remember on Bartholomew's Day, the Bartholomew's Day massacre, when so many thousands of them were slain. The Huguenots decided it was time to leave France. And of course the whole of Europe were blessed by their intelligence and their work ethic not to say America as well who's to say the Huguenots were wrong in deciding to leave it would be easy for us to stay well to say well maybe you should just stay there and there is an argument for that because France has been a spiritual wasteland ever since they left but who's to say that they did wrong in trying to raise their families for God in a better place even in our own country during the killing times in the 1670s and 80s so many of our Scots forebears went to Holland. They went to the Netherlands for safety and security. John Knox was very reluctant to return until people signed a covenant saying that they were willing 
to establish the reformed faith if he would just come and help them. And he said, sign a covenant and I will. Don't sign a covenant, he says, and I won't. But that's what I mean. It's not always easy to know what to do. And I want you to notice that this encouragement for David to flee to his mountain is actually coming from his friends. It's not from his enemies. Now, of course, your enemies will always say to you, get out of here. There are plenty of people in the nation today who want all Christians out. If, if, if we had boats that would sail elsewhere, they would rejoice. Go. I heard it said by a prominent person recently that faith was the biggest problem in, in the land. People of faith were the biggest problem in the land. So the enemies can say that, but in this psalm it's the friends that are saying it. In verse 2, the wicked are bending their bow. They're making their arrow ready on the string that they may shoot at the upright in heart. And if the foundations are destroyed, what, what can you do, David? We expect you to do much, but really it's past anything being done. You're caught in a snare, best for you and maybe best for us, that you just go to a refuge somewhere for your own safety, maybe for ours. Nothing can be done. Now, <clears throat> I don't know, but um, when should you stay and when should you go? If you were locked in Sodom and someone said to you, this place is getting bad, the foundations in this place are being absolutely destroyed. People can't pass through here safely without being gang-raped by people of their own sex. You're better out of here, and your family's better out of here. What would you say if you were son, if you were a lot? Oh, it's always possible to say, well, I can be here and be the salt of the earth. But as Jesus said, but if the salt loses its savour, how is it going to be salted? I think we would all agree it was Lot's duty to get out of there. The only person that we could understand going there was some kind of missionary who had a call. That's it. I mean, have we not all heard sermons based on the fact that Lot made a bad choice when he decided to go and live there? And he certainly made a bad choice when he decided not to leave there. He ended up having to be dragged out of it. When should you stay? When should you leave? Athanasius, the great Christian in the 4th century, um, was being urged to flee into exile all the time. And his own instinct was to stay and face martyrdom if need be. When should you go and when should you stay? Um, well, as the writer, well, Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes that there's a time uh, to live, there's a time to die. There's a time to gather, there's a time to scatter, there's a time to laugh, there's a time to weep, and so on. Although he doesn't say this, we could paraphrase him to say this too, there is a time to flee and there's a time to stay. Let me say first of all to you that the default position is that you always remain in persecution and difficulty. That you remain, that's the default your guidance should be to leave. And especially when we live in a covenant land, our calling is to remain in it and to face the difficulty and to fight 
that difficulty. Particularly if we have a special calling there. In Acts chapter 8, we're told that a persecution broke out against the people of God and the people had to flee Jerusalem. We're told that all the, uh, the people effectively fled, but that the apostles stayed. That's interesting. You would think in a way that the apostles might have said, oh, well, we, we can't uh, afford to stay here. We've got to preserve our lives at all costs. Our, our lives are too important to be preserved. We, uh, we must be preserved. That's not how they reasoned. They stayed. Peter ended up, of course, being taken captive and being put into prison because Herod, in fact, intended to kill him because he had killed James already. He saw that it pleased a lot of people and he wanted to kill Peter. What did the church do? They prayed. They prayed for Peter's deliverance. They prayed that God would intervene in respectfully what was a hellish situation. And I mean by that the powers of hell being unleashed. Lord, intervene. Of course, God opened the prison doors and he took Peter out, even to their own surprise, although they had been praying for it. So even the apostles, they remained in the land because they were called there. And that's always what God says. Let every man remain in the calling in which he was called. If we were called here in our life, in our society, placed in this nation, we stay unless God calls us to leave. You may be saying, am I speaking to someone who's intending to leave the country? I have no, no knowledge of any such thing at all. I'm just speaking an important spiritual point which will become more and more plain in a minute. Let every man remain in that same calling in which he was called. And to know whether you flee or stay, if both seem plausible, and if a good case can be made for both, you need to very carefully go down before God and ask him for special guidance in word and in providence. Something that people forget to do. But it's very important and it's very basic. In fact, for anything, any crisis of any kind in your life, just get down on your knees and ask the Lord, do I stay here or do I leave? I mentioned a moment ago about uh, raising your family in a, a better environment. Now, it's not going to be the case here because spiritually, it's, I suppose it's quite difficult to think of a, a better place, although I wouldn't exaggerate this, it's quite difficult to think of a better place in which to raise a family, perhaps, spiritually than here. Uh, but, but of course, this word that I'm preaching goes beyond here today. There could be someone uh, listening even to this who are faced with the situation, do we remain where we are, or, or do we leave? Now, let's say they were listening, and they heard this sermon prayerfully waiting for a word from God to guide them on that very matter. That would be a guidance to them from God on that very matter. Supposing I had preached on the other text, when they persecute you in one city, flee to another, that would well have been the guidance of God telling them to go. Do you, do you see that? I mean, the two things in different situations may be justifiable. It all depends on what God says to you in your circumstance 
at the time. He knows your heart. He knows your motives. And you need to bring your heart and your motives before God and say, Lord, what is it that you want me to do in this situation? Do I stay in my job and fight this persecution? Or do I just leave for myself and for my family? Now, sometimes when you're in a job and this spiritual persecution comes upon you, it can be really, really heavy. But you need to take the right opportunity to leave it as God guides you. Is it the glory of God you want? Or are you just afraid for yourself personally? Or are you just tired? What's the motive? But if you ask the Lord for that, if you ask him to search your heart, search your motive, and if you ask him to show you the way, he'll do that. You know, some people view God as though he's always trying to trick you or deceive you. He's doing nothing of the kind. He never does that. There is such a thing in the Bible as when people are really bent on, on a destructive course of action, God allows them to do that. Maybe he's done that in your life, where he says, you really, really, really want this? Why don't you go and do it then? Famously, when Jonah wanted to go west, when God had told him to go east, there was a boat there ready for him to go on to. God's effectively saying, you want to sail? Well, here's a boat, on you go and sail. You'll soon discover what the consequences are. But the fact of the matter is that God doesn't deceive us with things like that. The meek in judgment, he will guide and make his path to know. I will guide you with my eye. Don't be like the horse or the mule, which need a, a bit and a bridle, he says. Just look at my eye. I will guide you with my eye. My eye will tell you. And, uh, of course, David says elsewhere that just like the eye of the servant is on the hand of the mistress, uh, so my eye is upon you, O Lord. Uh, just, you know, a servant is really ready to do the will. They, they recognize a twitch of the hand or a gesture or, or a look of the eye. Because you, you're not alive, you see. And, and as a Christian is like that, just, just watch for a movement from God. <clears throat> I will guide you with my eye. The key to recognizing that is humility of spirit. A humble, prayerful spirit will know the guidance of God. Now, <clears throat> There are many situations which call for guidance. It's not just persecution. Do I stay in persecution or do I leave it? Do I carry on in this job or, or, or do I find another one? Or carry on in this calling or look for another one? A whole host of situations where you're not sure do I go to the right or to the left. Well, there is no answer to that except the answer that God gives you personally on your knees as a humble child before God. Get to that place and God will guide you. I've probably told you before, I feel I've told so many people so often, but it struck myself so powerfully the first time I read it that George Muller said that when you want guidance from God, the first thing you need to do is not ask guidance, but ask God for a heart that will accept guidance. That's the first thing he says you need to do. You've got to get yourself prayerfully into that position with God where you'll take what God wants you to do. And he says the amazing thing is that once you get yourself to that position, it becomes as plain as day. Getting yourself to that position is the hard bit.
but God will give it to you. He'll give it to you. It comes down to motive. And I think that takes us right back to David's circumstances here. See, when David gets this advice, flee to the mountain because the wicked are ready to get you and the foundations are finished. David says, how can you say that to my soul? That's what he says in verse 1. How, how can you say that, he says, to me? David recognises that the tone used by even his friends was, well, well, you read it and get the tone. The tone is very defeatist, is it not? The tone is saying the foundations are destroyed or they're being destroyed. What can the righteous do? That's the kind of question that anticipates the answer. Nothing. Can't do anything. But that's not how David sees it. And the rest of the psalm tells us how David sees the situation and how God leads him to see the situation. And what he really calls to mind in the rest of the psalm is the fact that God is a throne and that changes everything. That throne is first of all in his church in verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. Now the holy temple here represents the church. And God is enthroned in the church between the cherubim. That reminds us that the presence of God is with the people. He's always, always with the soul, even when they are persecuted and suffering for righteousness sake. In other words, when they're in a situation that may make someone say, well, God's not with you. He says, God is with me. He's always in his holy temple. He is always in the midst of his people. God in the midst of her doth dwell, and nothing shall her remove. That's as true individually as it is of the church, the elect of God, corporately. God in the midst of her doth dwell. He dwells in your heart, and nothing will remove you. He is also, David says, enthroned in the universe. The Lord's throne is in heaven, not just in the church, but in heaven over everything. As Psalm 75 reminds us, it's God that casts down and it's God that raises up. God has taken away maybe good people. He has given us rulers who are very far from being good people. But he reigns over friend and foe and he will keep you from all evil even if you stay in the situation in which you are. God can keep you as Psalm 91 reminds us. He that doth in the secret place of the most high reside under the shade of him that is the almighty shall abide. Go to God and God's protection is upon you. And then again, not only is the Lord enthroned in the hearts of his people and in the church, he's enthroned over the universe, but he's enthroned there as the God of judgment. David says that he knows and judges everything as it happens. His eyes behold, in verse 4, and his eyelids test the sons of men. I think I referred to this last week or the week before last. It's a strange expression. His eyes see everything. <clears throat> well, that's straightforward enough. We're told that the seven eyes of God are going to and fro over the face of the whole earth. Incidentally, that's looking for those who are loyal to him. 
in the passage in which that occurs. His seven eyes are to and fro over the face of the earth, looking for those who are loyal to him. But as well as his eyes seeing everything, we're told that his eyelids test everything. Now, I think I mentioned to you that when a person is peering, the figure here may be taken from the image of um, the refiner uh, who is refining silver in the furnace, and their eyes are just peering into it to, to, to see the right moment at which to remove the metal. And when a person is looking closely into something, their eyes tend to peer. Well, that's conveying the fact that the Lord is just getting right into your heart, to the thoughts and intents of your heart, everybody's heart. He knows the feelings. He knows the decisions. He knows the bias of the will. He knows why the decisions are made. Other people don't, but the Lord knows. The Lord knows you and he knows me. And he knows these people whom he has placed over the nation. The other text that came to my mind, incidentally, when this election took place, was a text about Saul, where the prophet says that the Lord gave you a king in his anger, and he will take him away in his wrath. Maybe the other way around, that he gave him in his wrath, and he will take him away in his anger. Either way, it's the same. Here he is as a judgment upon you but I will also take him away in my anger. The Lord is on a throne of judgment. These things are his activity. He's not a passive spectator. He's bringing all these things to pass. And he guarantees you that if you're in the midst of these things, you will know his keeping and his preservation. And if you are called to stand and to give your account, Jesus says, don't worry about it. He says, I will tell you what to say. Or the spirit of my Father who is in you will give you the words to speak. Do not worry concerning it. He knows. And he also loves the righteous and looks on them with favour. That's the last verse of the psalm. He loves the righteous and he looks on them with favour. Although in verse 5 he tests them. He tests their life loves righteousness and he loves the righteous and he looks on them his countenance beholds them but in verse 6 these wicked he will rain coals upon them fire and sulphur which reminds us of Sodom and Gomorrah and a burning scorching Sirocco wind that shall be the portion of their cup why? because at the end of verse 5 we're told that the Lord um, hates the wicked he hates those who love violence hates their life hates their their moral opposition to himself and to his own people and he will judge he'll judge them in this world and he'll judge them in the world to come <clears throat> we need to believe friends that the cycle that has brought us here with repentance will take us right out of it and restore things to even better than we were before. We know that because the Word of God tells us that. And that's why in verse 1 David says, In the Lord I put my trust. That's my mountain. That's my rock. That's my refuge. That's my defence. And that's my security. 
And along with that, that's an explicit declaration that I'm staying. Along with that, implicitly, the righteous can do something. You're saying the righteous can do nothing. The righteous can do something. And that's still the case. I made a reference last week to our churches being so small and so weak and so fragmented. And it's a spiritual weakness, but could so much not be done if we rededicated ourselves to the Lord, all of us? Is that not what God is waiting for? Is it not? I spoke about the seven eyes that go to and fro looking for those who will be loyal on his behalf. Is that not what he wants? Just a bit of loyalty, a bit of seal, a bit of commitment, a bit of, a bit of willingness to speak, a bit of willingness to stand, instead of tutting at things behind our own doors. Does he not want us to be a little more forthright for himself? What would unity and zeal accomplish? We're still free to set up schools for our children, you know, right throughout the land. At last there is an evangelical church in Glasgow that seems at last interested in doing so. Why is it taking so long? If, if we don't do it, the opportunity to do it might just slam shut in our faces because we haven't taken it. But if we care for a rising generation, which Presbyterian Scotland has lost in their thousands and in their hundreds of thousands, if we really care, we will stop educating them according to the state's principles. Because in case you haven't noticed, they're ungodly. And it reveals itself. And we will start educating them on Christian principles. Unless God says, you've had your chance and I'm closing that door. Now when you begin to build, and I'm closing with this, when you begin to build this foundation, of course everybody laughs at it. And the example of that, I'm sorry, but I've gone way past my time. But the example of that is in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, <coughs> when, when they returned to rebuild the temple and the, and the city. When they came back, they were shocked at the size of the task. Everything was a mess and they could only remember what it had been so many years before and they felt it was almost impossible to start but start they did and immediately they started the, the liberals, the half-hearted half-brothers came and said what are you doing that for that wall that you're building in Jerusalem if a fox climbs on top of it it's going to crumble down the laughter it can be the same when you start a school or when you plant a church Everybody says, is that a school is that a church well, never you mind. If, if the foundation is being laid in the name of the Lord, and if it's being raised against anti-Christian powers, the Lord will honour it, and he'll honour those in it. What he won't honour is inertia and carelessness, and just watching on as the foundations are destroyed. May God help us to stay in our posts and be loyal to him. Let us pray. Lord our God we pray to recognise our own calling uh, to be faithful to you and although there may indeed be a time to flee there is also a time to remain and in this land which you once uh, lavished with kindness and with grace a land that was once adorned with uh, the gospel 
and with godliness. Uh, we pray to mourn in a right way over her declension and spiritual poverty. And as well as enabling us to weep for ourselves and for our children, help us to resolve, to relay a foundation for God, and to build upon it. For righteousness exalts a nation, and sin is the reproach of any people. In the Saviour's name we pray. Amen. Our um, closing psalm is Psalm 75. Psalm 75. Verse 5. Lift not your horn. This is an address to powerful people in authority. Don't lift your horn on high or speak with a stubborn neck. Know this, that not from east nor west nor south promotion doth flow, but God is judge. He puts one down and sets another up. And we're told at the end of the psalm that all horns of lewd men I'll cut off, but just men's horns will raise. And will you not pray that the Lord will do that? Cut off the horns of the wicked and raise the horns of the just. We stand to sing.
Fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.